would say. Welcome. Welcome to Books and Bubbles. Where we read great books and drink bubbles. (laughs) That's perfect. We need that every time now. Welcome to Bubbles and Books, a podcast about two of the best things in life books and champagne brought to you by amanda and ellen co-owners of your local independent bookstore dog-eared books in Ames, Iowa. first give me a cheers okay okay we're ready and yeah. books are sexy okay we have special guests today i can start talking like ellen needs to hurry up um we have special guests today and so i picked our nicest champagne in the fridge for them it is enrico serafino and it's 2017, and I don't know how to pronounce this. Oudie, O U D E I S, Brut. It's a dry one because that's all I pick. Um, and it's from Italy, and it's made in the classic Italian style. Let's see if they have any. Oh, they're one of the very first Italian wineries to produce traditional sparkling methods in the 19th century historical aging cellars. Oh, and it's named after, it's it's um, Spanish for Odysseus, I guess. It says the name Udi, or Odysseus, comes from the Greek maybe word meaning, oath. maybe, meaning nobody. We are striving for the recognition of the Alta Lenga territory to be the main character of these wines. So cool. Game on. Yeah, we'll tell, it has no tasting notes, so we'll have to. So it's water. Yeah, <laughs> we're supposed to say for ourselves. I'm in a cave. So you have to try it first without orange juice. Yeah, Mariah's yeah. gonna, Mariah is going to mimosa. Ellen and I are going to no mosa. And Sarah's so responsible. Sarah might semi mosa. Okay, semi mosa. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Mariah is one of our booksellers. She has a background in Victorian literature. She taught literature, correct? English. Um, mostly composition. Mostly composition. Um, so she loves classics, but she also dabbles in fantasy, rom-coms. You're very eclectic, but we love your knowledge on classics um, and the great works of literature. And you may know her from her sometimes part-time gig at our favorite pizza place, Great Plains Sauce and Dough. So it's all in the family. She's another Main Street slut. Yeah, that's what we call people true. who work at multiple places downtown. Um, and then we're also going to introduce Sarah Wiley, who's the boss lady. No, she's the authority. The authority. So when we had the tornado warning a couple weeks back, she was on duty and we get a text. And this is me. This is why I'm not the authority because I'm just like driving in the storm with my husband, not even thinking about the fact that our store is open. And I get a text from Sarah saying, it's okay. We're all fine here. We're going to the basement. We'll let you know when we come up. (laughs) So like she was the person to be there. And one of the reasons why she's the authority is because her other business, she has many, many, um, axes that she grinds. No, that's like when you have a resentment. What do you call? I mean, that's also true. I kind of feel like, but I do juggle balls. You juggle balls and grind axes. I want to hear about the balls you juggle and the axes you grind. Woman of many balls and axes, apparently. (laughs) We first met her. Uh, Let's put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Ball, ball juggler, axe grinder. Um, she. 
became our friend when we were opening our store because she is like, a, it's travel on uh, agent is not the correct term. Uh, what is the, you're you way more professional. Yeah, we say travel planner. So yeah. mm-hmm. another hat I wear is I plan international and domestic travel for solo people and mm-hmm. couples and groups, whatever yeah. anybody's looking mm-hmm. for. So it's really in-depth tailor planning for travelers. Yeah. And is this a hat or a ball? Or an axe. Oh, shit. It's a ball, mm-hmm. which sometimes can be an axe. She's Maybe not really, she it's is just really good at planning trips. She planned my trip to, this is like one of her like lowbrow trips, but she can do lowbrow as well as she can do highbrow. She um, helped us go to the Smoky Mountains and um, planned activities that were appropriate for our kids and found us the best restaurants within driving distance in a place where good food goes to die. So the fact that she was able to find us a couple of good restaurants was amazing um, and planned our hikes and our lodging and everything. So she's amazing. But um, so now we'll transition to our conversation that we have to have about BTS, because that is something that unites the two of you, as well as our topic of conversation for a little bit later. Yeah, yeah we're going to meet up to like prepare. We have we oh. have some uh, and we have some army stuff to to mm-hmm. work through. Yes, a lot's happened in our fandom lately, and we've got to like, like prepare ourselves. What's your fandom? You guys are like have to talk about it because (laughs) I will. Uh, We are because we're together. It's true. We bonded very deeply over BTS. Yeah, we're army. Is the I'm a long, long BTS. So for people who don't know who BTS are, tell them. BTS is a seven member uh, band from Korea. Mm-hmm. A K-pop band that debuted in 2015. No, so, 2013. 20, yes, yes, mm-hmm. 2013, because they're coming up on their ninth year. Mm-hmm. And so this was something, I think only, maybe, it's it's growing in the States now, I think, in popularity. Over 50% of BTS fans are post-Dynamite Army. Yeah. Dynamite. What is post-Dynamite Army? So Dynamite is the song that I'm sure everyone knows. That was way off tune, but it's that song. Um, and that was like their first enormously big breakthrough hit. They've had others before, like DNA and Boy with Love. Yeah. But, but Sarah went to the show in LA. She did. I almost killed her for I a did. ticket. I yeah. did. I got tickets on a very on a whim through a friend of a friend to go to the very first PTD, the Permission to Dance LA show. So for Army out there, you'll know. So I went to day one of PTD. So because she's like that, she's yeah. really cool. So. It's been, uh, yeah, but Mariah and I are very deep army, so we have to catch up. It's kind of like the modern day New Kids on the Block Backstreet Boys. Like, it's the boy band, the new era of boy bands. Yeah. I would argue even larger than yeah, that. Oh, yeah. They're, they're yeah. more sure. frequently compared like to, like, Spice the Beatles. Girls. Yeah, and fandom, particularly out of, like, Asian fandom, it's a whole different way that you interact. Mm-hmm. So your interactions with the band have, it's much more structured right mm-hmm. so there are chants and there are things you do and there are ways you interact yeah and the cool expectations tools. like you had to bring the flashing light yep. stick to participate yep. in the music mm-hmm. the whole thing so it's just it's much deeper i think way of interacting with music mm-hmm. yeah which i find very fascinating and they like openly say oh we wrote this song to our fans so like their album b which came out 2021 um is 
to ARMY. And so a lot of the songs talk about how much they miss their fans. And like during pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And so when I'm sitting home alone, I'm thinking of you and, you know, all of that kind of thing about missing community oh. and forming community. That's sweet. That's how I feel about Taylor Hines all the time already. Travel agent, planner, who has seen the world. Travel planner of hats, balls, and axes. Yeah. yeah. Victorian scholar. Mm-hmm. Probably also has balls and axes. Yeah. That's true. But one of the things that's unique, I mean, obviously you guys are fascinated by international music. You're also fascinated by international literature. So we're really excited. We're launching a new book club. Um, it's been an area of interest of Ellen and I since we opened this idea of featuring translated literature, the best the world has to offer. And you guys stepped up to the plate and said, we'd like to host a book club featuring translated literature. So tell us about it. Where, what, what prompted the idea and what are you excited about? Tell us about some of your favorite translated pieces. What are you starting off with? So Sarah and I uh, got the idea for this book club because I'm a pick me and I wanted to lead a book club. And I said, <laughs> I don't really have a niche. So you're sorry. You're a pick me. Can my nickname for you be Booger? <laughs> sure. My mom calls me Krabby Patty. Um, so, you know, it's in that club. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, Go you're ahead. good. You're good. So um, I was talking with Sarah because, you know, I read pretty widely and not like in a specific I don't just read memoirs or sci-fi or whatever and so I wanted a book club and so I mentioned that to Sarah after we had been at a BTS concert that was streamed in the movie theater and <laughs> Sarah mentioned that she had thought about doing a translated book club and in the past couple of years I've definitely gotten more into translated works mm -hmm. because of a reading challenge I do every year hosted by Book Riot um and I thought that was a great idea. And also, selfishly, one of my goals this year was to read more translated works. I'm trying to read at least 15 translated novels this more year. More than one a month. Good job. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this book club was kind of the intersection of all of my selfish desires and wants. And Sarah um, was game to help make that happen. So Sarah has get like... Books pop up in the store, and I know they're a Sarah book because <laughs> they usually have like a kind of creepy cover. Yep. It, or you can tell it's translated. And she also has a great bookstagram where she reviews her books. What's your handle? Oh. Are we allowed? No. I mean, you want to spell it? Yeah. Yeah. Because if I say it. So, oh, okay. It's H A R I M A U B E T I N A. And what that is, is Harimau Bettina. It means tigress in Malay. You are so bad. There's a reason for that because it was my nickname in high school because I spent a year overseas. I lived in Malaysia for a year and that was my nickname at school with cool. all of the connotations that come with the word tigress. It's similar. So that nickname amongst my friends overseas has followed me for a long time. It was my first email address way back in the AOL days. Yeah. So, so cool. it has, was it Yahoo or AOL? It was AOL. And then a my QQ, which was again a mine messenger, was but... Edward and Bella True Love Forever. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Team Jacob. <laughs> you guys, my first one was Eags Girl because Austin's nickname was Eags, and Aww. I got email when I started dating. Like, isn't that weird? <laughs> so and I'm married to the guy. Anyway, continue. I don't know what my first email. I have no idea what it was. Was it like user one six eight four one two seven? No, 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 no. It was. 
don't dox her, Sarah. Totally. I don't know. And now I have very boring email addresses that have to do. <laughs> we with, all do, right? First initial, know, last mm, name. That kind mm. of thing, yeah. But how did you, uh, obviously you had experience traveling when you were young, mm. saw the world, got a taste for it, latched on, kept going after it. But um, what do you enjoy about reading translated literature? What do I enjoy about reading? Because you do seek it out. I do. And I think that's a, what's, what does it satiate? I mean, the, the low hanging fruit is always, it, it takes you somewhere, yeah. right? It takes you, it's travel. It is travel when you can't, it certainly was travel when none of us could. Um, and it is a peek into another world. And I think all books do that, right? Mm-hmm. All books mm-hmm. will transport you. But when you add another layer of culture and mm-hmm historical context and and social context in there knowing that it's translated again it takes you beyond it really takes you to someplace new um I like books I think there's many reasons we read and I have some books that are my guilty pleasure and that I will sort of sink into but I like work that pushes me Mm -hmm. and I like books that force me to new places Mm -hmm. or uncomfortable ideas Mm -hmm. or test my boundaries translated lit you cannot come to it with any expectations, right? Yeah. So because characters or plots or themes do not operate the way we might understand, right? The way we understand a fairy tale is once upon a time mm-hmm. and a princess and a knight and da 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 and happily ever after, right? There's a cadence to mm-hmm. the works that we know. Some of that's, a lot of that's in your subconscious, right? That is unconscious how you come to things. You can't bring that same idea to translated literature because that's not how it's going to work their formula is different it's a little bit like how Grimm's fairy tales were this dark scary story i mean they're not happily ever after the true one the the originals and so i mean i know that's the closest yeah it's really hot in the loft (laughs) um i'm gonna sweat through my shirt um I agree with you is you can't come with expectations Mm -hmm. and not to um, glorify otherness. But when I read something that's translated, I'm constantly being surprised by things that are foreign to me. Like, why are they being like this? Um, I've read a lot more in the last couple of years. Um, The first one recent, like where I really latched onto this idea of this is really different was when my sister had me read, um, the Door by Magda Sosbo. Um, I believe she is Hungarian. And the thing that transform- was really interesting for me was there was an introduction in the book that talked about the percentage of books in the English language that we are have access to that are translated. And it's something minuscule, like 2%, somewhere it's below 5% of what we have access to has been translated. So we have this teeny little English speaking world. And yes, like a lot of people speak English, but there's the whole rest of the world, many, many, many other languages and peoples and lifestyles and experiences that have fed into like great literature. And we're missing out on it. Um, I think it's interesting to observe trends in what English speakers consume in translation. So there was definitely like the great Russian era um, the French novels, mm-hmm. I would say there was an era and this is not translated, but there is kind of a cultural translation that happened. A lot of Australian books have come our way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
right now, the trend I'm seeing is a lot of Japanese and Korean. Yes. Yeah. There's And how exciting mm-hmm. to have this door opened. Um, what trends have you guys observed? It's a really big trend, too. Like, sci-fi. So there's a big Chinese sci-fi movement right okay. now. That I was thinking about, like, the three-body problem mm-hmm. by Liu Shishin. Yeah. Yes, the three bodies. Mm-hmm. So that one also, right, it's coming out of Netflix as a, a show, but that one I think is a big, and usually it takes one, right? One it really opens the door. good book or mm-hmm. interesting book mm-hmm. and people want more of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it completely sort of opens, cracks things open of, oh, what what's more like that? I think East Asian horror also oh, yeah. um, has latched You've on. you some good ones. I, I do love my horror. Like so. body horror specifically has become a trend in translated fiction, but also like in domestic U.S. Um, horror fiction. Yeah, yeah, domestically we're seeing it too. I wonder if that's, I would like to write some big ode about like how is this is all a response to the pandemic and it's all like us returning yeah. to our bodies and things, but I don't think I'm going to go like, I don't know if that's true or not, but like I, it might be poetry bubbling within me. I want you to write it. I want you to perform it. I will do interpretive dance with it. That's fantastic. I mean, I'll we need nothing tambourine. more, really. Yeah. We don't. So, um, another example of like a door opening. I'm thinking. I mean, the the crime novels that came out mm. of Europe were like a big trend, mm-hmm. but Frederick Bachman, Swedish, mm-hmm. like, and it's a very uh, similar culture to something we've read before. But the, there's these little mm-hmm. these little differences in how people live that's just fascinating or etiquettes. Um, you know, like basic common etiquette that's different and they're, and it's just, it's fascinating. And so, slang, like mm-hmm. even when it, when it's translated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you're saying one of the things that you said has kind of resonated with me where you're like, it's a totally different experience. Like you can't mm-hmm. bring your own, uh, you know, all the preconceived socialized conditioning that you have doesn't always apply to translated works. And that makes sense to me because oftentimes when I read a book that's translated, I'm like, that was trippy as fuck. Yeah. And I liked it. Yeah. That's but I wonder exactly if part it. of the trippiness is that it's just different. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, Murakami is trippy um, regardless. But, you know, like, I, th- I wonder if some of that feeling of it being trippy is just that it's so outside everything, of my norm. Yeah, yeah. Everything is just a little off kilter from the way we live. Yeah. And I'm actually quite fascinated by the translation process. Like, mm-hmm. I read things like <clears throat> Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead or Kafka on the Shore or like a, a, any number of translated works that are so well written. And, and then I wonder like how much of this is a translator? How much of this is the original author? And what was the philosophy of translation with this book? Mm-hmm. And, and is... Because it's, it's, it could go a, a bunch of different ways, right? And is the author bilingual or trilingual, et cetera, yeah. um, in that mm-hmm. they can consume their English product and make a judgment? Or can they not? Is it blind? Go ahead. Um, so not to derail this train, uh, but I think part of what I like about translated literature is not the difference, but the sameness. Ooh, yeah. Because um, something that I believe very strongly personally is that we need to move away from an us versus them mentality, mm-hmm. mentality um, like as a nation or as mm-hmm. a state or whatever, and move toward a global us. Mm-hmm. And so for all the differences there are in translated works, like when I read The Vegetarian, for example, um, which Sarah recommended to me, there's a lot of like loneliness and not knowing 
who you are and how you feel about yourself. And I think those kinds of feelings are universal. You know, the way that you love your husband or your partner, those are universal feelings. Mm -hmm. And for all of the cultural differences and the changes um, and trends and storytelling narratives, there are still those core like human bits there. And I think it shows that this person who is so different from me is still a person like me mm-hmm. and was once an awkward teenager who made a deeply regrettable first email. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a person who has gotten up in front of a crowd of people and embarrassed themselves. Yeah. Like that is a, a human universal experience. And the universal point of reading books, windows yeah. and mirrors. Like you said last week. In, yeah. In last it's, it's, it can humanize what we has have seen as separate yeah. and different. Um, by uniting oh, us while also allowing us to have greater, have greater empathy and understanding. Right, right. So what would be one of the best pieces of translated fiction or nonfiction, probably fiction, that you've read recently? Give us your pitch. I mean, you brought in a really fun one, not not to put words in your mm. mouth, but is it Winter? A Winter's Promise a Winter's by Christelle Davos. And that was Fret from the French. Yes. And it's in YA and yes. it's fantasy. Tell yes. us about that one. And then if, if you want to mention something else you've read re- more recently, tell yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, so Winter's Promise, uh, I had heard like from other bo- book podcasts I listened to, and it was just like kind of circulating in some of the bookish communities I'm in. And it is a sci-fi novel, or excuse me, a fantasy novel that takes place in a world that is theoretically like ours, except for something happened. Um, where all the parts of the earth were blown apart and now everyone lives on these floating islands called arcs um, that float amongst this abyss that if you descend into and come back out, you deal with madness and that kind of thing. But each of these islands has its own family god and these family gods have different powers. And so our main character, Ophelia, um, is an animist, which means that she can read the histories of um, objects with her hand. So she can touch this book and see what the person who is That's reading so it cool. felt and thought in some of their life story. And she can also like travel through mirrors and that kind of thing. And she uh, gets sent off in an arranged marriage to an arc called the Pole to a standoffish Buddhist guy called Thorn. Um, and his power is that he has claws, which like are a mental power to attack people um, and like shred their mind. And um, the first book is filled with like court intrigue and finding out about Thorne's family secrets and what's wrong with the um, family god on this arc. Um, and then the story kind of goes off from there as to why the earth was blown into pieces. Yeah. And the magic system is just really innovative and deeply fun and not something I had seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a four book series? Yes, it's four books, but most people just read the three. I started the fourth and it's kind of different than the other ones in some okay. significant ways. Um, but yeah, it's a series. Uh, it comes from French uh, and... I, I it's enormously fun. That's all I can say. It's a very quiet book, mm-hmm. which I think is different than a lot of YA fantasy. I feel like a lot They're of YA big fantasy, and bold, yeah, is loud, aggressive. and the characters are people who don't care what anybody thinks. And um, the character of a Wonder's Promise, Ophelia, is very quiet and bookish and very strong in her own way, but it's strong in a quiet way, mm-hmm. like the way that an old tree is strong. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
So yeah, I'm really excited you brought that in. It sold well in YA and it's a fun little gift to our readers that they wouldn't get somewhere else. Yeah, it's our December book. So uh, I'm a nerd who likes to read seasonally. So we're ending... Oh, yeah, winter. Uh, yeah, with a winter's promise. Perfect. So. Okay, so you have that to look forward to. Um, Sarah, what's something you read that you loved? I always will rave about uh, Pyeon Hae Young's The Hole. Mm-hmm. The Hole I, is I my... I read that on your recommendation, and it was fucked up in a great way. I love... So I'm a big horror reader and watcher. I love... Emotion is universal and how we translate it's universal, but fear is primal. It is beyond universal. It is primal. And horror done well can tap into that emotion. Mm-hmm. But what requires for great, great horror is great craft. Mm-hmm. And I love craft. Ellen and I talk tons about book craft, right? Great horror has to have great book craft. And to be able to have that and translate that and still get that feeling, mm-hmm. right? To make it work and to be unnerved or uncomfortable or feel it special skill that is craft and so the whole starts out um a middling guy who's married he's in a car crash he was driving the car and his wife passes away she dies immediately in the car crash and he's left paralyzed and the only family he has left is his mother-in-law to take care of him which is a seemingly sort of innocuous setup but it the threads of this book slowly sort of peel apart And it's not until the last couple pages when you look back through the entire text that you see that single thread and how it's pulled through the book. And it will, you will feel it. You will feel it in your spine. Oh, you'll feel it. It's the best kind of horror where you're like, it does not rely on like gore or like um, super huge plot climactic moments. It's, It's like the slow build. Yeah, you the know, tension that's built. Yeah, so it's tension. not gore. There's no blood. There's nothing. It's uh, like good horror about is it. when you feel this like burgeoning sense of dread, yeah. and it just grows yeah. and it grows, yep. and you're like, "You are fucking with me, and I love it." Yeah. Um, and that book did it. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful. It's the craft is beautiful. It's written very well, and it's one of those. A lot of books sometimes, like we talk all the time here, obviously, about what are you reading? What's everybody reading? Mm-hmm. Behind the counter, we're constantly talking. But it's always interesting to think back, like sometimes ask, well, did you read six months ago? Because mm-hmm. there's books that stick, right? Mm-hmm. They're yeah. just, for whatever reason, they stick in your bones. And this was one of mine that has stuck in my bones for a long, long time. So um, I love it. This book comes from where? Do you know? South Korea. South Korea. Yep. So it's a translation out of South Korea. Okay. And it's She's not, written I mean, a it's couple a, other It's not a well. long book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, it's not a long read. Um yeah, I really enjoyed it too. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. I think that's what's kind of interesting about some of the translated works because I was interested in in maybe forming a book club around quick reads. Yep. Um, but it's um the slim volumes have really been adopted for unusual stories. Um, and a lot of the translated works we have that come in are petite novels. Um, I'm thinking of elderly ladies up to no good. Mm. Yeah. And lemon, lemon, Winter and soap mm-hmm. shows mm-hmm. under 200, um, the I think. dangers of smoking in bed. Yeah. They're all yeah. slim and what a cool, powerful, um, tool. Like I'd like to see that kind of go more universal. Um, but apparently it is outside of our country. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us about your book club. What are you, uh, what is your goal with the club and what are you starting with? 
And when are you hosting? Yeah, so our book club, we're really, we are hopping. We are going around the globe. Different countries, cultures, and communities, as we say, through amazing stories, gaining fresh perspective as we read diversely. So we are not locked into a genre. We're not locked into a place. We are reading very, very, very broadly this first year. We have, we're starting with Love in the Big City by Park Sang Young, which is a Korean translation. It's about a young man, a queer young man in his 20s living in the big city, living in Seoul, and his relationship with his friends and family um, and hookups. And it's a very beautifully written, uh, deep book with great, it's still very, very recent, right? Some people very much shy away from no pop culture and sort of like, my literature has to be very highbrow to be deep. Right. It's none of that. And it's such an interesting, great mm-hmm. read. So we will actually talk about that in our book club next mm-hmm. week. And it's really fun because we brought in most of your titles in, you know, at least some quantity as soon as you knew what you were picking. Mm-hmm. And that one's really flown off the shelf. Mm-hmm. It's really fun. You did a good shelf talk card. The cover is beautiful. Too. The cover yeah, is fun. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It's got these painted fingernails doing a snap. Yep. A... It has the Korean flag laid over what they call um, finger hearts. So this is a finger heart. Oh my so gosh. See, this is a heart. They do so that with say... K-pop. Yeah, so this is a way to say, I love your hearts. You make hearts. Ah, That's a finger heart. That's way cooler than the cupped hands. That's what that is. I'm going to start doing that. Or you go like this. I'm like, I have your thumb, so I can't do that part. (laughs) Um, I got to make sure I do it right. What you you said reminded me about this philosophy that I have. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear it? Yes. I don't think I have a choice. (laughs) One of my philosophies in life is that Everybody gets to be a snob about one thing. Mm-hmm. You cannot be a snob about multiple things or you're insufferable. So, for example, oh, you get, you like get if one. you're a person who's like, I will not read Nicholas Sparks. That's cool. You can be a snob about books. But guess what? If somebody gives you a course light, you can't be like, I only drink craft beer. Okay. That's like fair. you have your hill of beans. You exactly. already died on your hill of you beans. You get one thing. Okay. And you can be a total snob about that one thing. Right. But then you got to give it. No, it's not like there. It, you can't be a snot about food, wine, books, music. You, you, you choose one thing. Okay. So everyone say what their one thing is. Sarah. Oh, I have to think about it. What am I really? I, Since it it's feels gatekeepy to me. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't have. I know it's gatekeepy. But you I know get one, you, get you get one thing. thing. I got to think about what I. Okay, Ellen, do you have one since books. it's your philosophy? Okay. <laughs> so how would you describe your snobbishness? Like, where is your gate? I do... Are you, like, the only read classics on a bus, lady? No, fuck no. I... <laughs> I value good writing mm-hmm. over, like, plot any day. So, like, I don't... I hate a book that is poorly written. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. I don't care how good the plot is, how entertaining it is. I'm like, this is trash. I want like <clears throat> I want originality. Yes. I want craft. I want yes. Like I want the way you put words together does something for me. What have you passed on being a snob about to preserve your book snobbishness? Everything else, because you only get one thing. Okay. I will drink Coors Light. I don't care. I will drink Andre Cold Duck. Don't care. Mm-hmm. Don't care. She. That's true. I would say that about her. I'm a little. <laughs> I'm a little concerned. Apparently, I'm insufferable. 
You're not I am also insufferable. You guys have long lists. You're not. I don't. I'm a tea know, snob. I am a coffee snob. I am a yarn snob. Yeah, obviously you're insufferable. But Amanda, <laughs> you're not. The only thing that you're a snob about is champagne. Drinking in general. Like, I don't. Like, yeah, the category of drinking. But you know I have other ones. Like so, what? Dog, food, food dog breeds. Bit. Dog breeds. Yeah. What's a dog breed? That? I can't do it because I might. But I don't think you're ostracized too many of our customers. It's like I have a miniature schnauzer. Is that's that fine. Okay. okay, okay, that's fine. There's one particular but thing you, that's a thorn in my side, listen, and I don't like it. But you're not. But you don't go except for like to people you, that you're like friends with. You don't like advertise. I'm oh, talking no. about what you can advertise being a snob about. I yes, I would say I love good food, and I hate like carnival food so much. You know, like. Like airport food, I know I don't like carnival food unless it's what the it's warm bucket cake? of cookies with the ice cold milk at the state fair. What's it? What if it's a funnel cake? Honey oh. lemonade at the state fair, though. Honey lemonade. Have okay. you never had the honey lemonade? Mm-mm. I I avoid the state fair. Sorry. Oh okay. God, I'm a proud Iowan. There is nothing worse than the state fair. Yeah, yeah. Sticky. Okay. I'm a transplant, so it's a very different. I guess I'm a snob about you know, my, my father-in-law <laughs> runs the booth. During a state fair, and uh-huh. so he knows how to make it. So I can make some for you sometimes. Okay, done. Yeah, my father-in-law um like is a honeybee scientist, so he works the booth sometimes there. Okay. Yeah, I would I would say like maybe so not good. drinking trash, um like fake cocktails. Oh, sour mix. Yeah. You know, like I, a, I definitely think like drinking is your. Okay. What am I snobby about? Maybe see, maybe that's my I have the opposite problem. Maybe I need to set some life boundaries. I think your books. <laughs> maybe I, think your I will. I will. I will agree. <laughs> there are certain, um, and it is craft. If it is, I don't have to agree with the topic. I don't even have to like the character. Sometimes I love a shitty protagonist, mm-hmm. but they have to be well written yeah. and they have to be purposeful and in a world that makes sense. I will. I am the person that pencils in the errors and the library books. Whoa. I can't. If there is a typo out, if there's a comma missing, I, like I will. I am that person. I love it because I cannot yeah. get beyond the medium is the word in this case, right? And it's like painting, and you're like, well, my painting, my paint was shitty. Then your work is shitty. Like <laughs> it's it's part of the material in which yeah. you work. Yep. Your words <laughs> matter. You and need to know yes. how to use them and manipulate them properly. Thank you. Yeah, I'm the anti-grammar police, like in real life, in the in published books, whatever. I agree with you. But yeah, in, in real life, that is one thing that I am also a stickler on, is like if someone is texting somebody and they use the wrong there. Did yeah. you understand what they if meant? If the okay. meme has the wrong, if the meme has bad grammar, yeah, I will best. not share it. That's and the if best. You share, I will. If you share it and it's wrong, oh, I... Because then I'll judge you. Yeah, I'll be like, there, don't do it. there. Because you know, but maybe that's it. I, that's what I'm a labeling. snob about. Picture labeling. I'm a grandma Me and snob. Ellen. Yeah, me and right? Ellen, or um, Ellen and I, they're always like, Ellen and I, is that a picture of I? That's a picture of I. You guys, did you see the picture of I? <laughs> you guys, let's, little moment here. Okay. If you label yourself in a picture, that's a picture of you. When you refer to yourself, you say, that's me. Mm-hmm. So that's me in a photo. If it's you and someone else, it's Ellen and me. If it makes you feel uncomfortable to say and me because you feel like it's grammatically incorrect, say me and Ellen in this photo. 
Do not say I when labeling yourself in a photo. It is never correct unless you're saying I was in this photo. Yeah, I love for that self. You're saying that to us for self. Well, there's her hill of beans. Yeah, there's <laughs> your hill of beans. My, that's my true hill of beans. <laughs> my, I, I, Give I, me a crappy drink. I am a not. Photo a, label. I am not a grammar snob in in speaking. Oh There's no. like the vernacular, but I'm never going to be somebody who like if a kid was like, "Can I get in the bathroom?" My son's grandma. I was never like, "May you?" Yes, you may. may. Yes. Um. In writing. Yes. yes. And I would always tell my students when I taught writing, it's okay to break grammatical rules, but there has to be a, per- you have to know the rules in order to break them effectively. Mm-hmm. And it is very obvious when you're doing, when you know the rules and you're breaking them intentionally versus when you just don't know the rules. Yes. Um, but I, I really feel like anybody can, like anybody can paint a picture. Not everybody can paint a picture well. Absolutely. Myself included. Anybody can write a story. Any any of us can think of a story and write it down. That doesn't mean we're going to tell it well. So to me, it's of how you take this idea and you put craft it together and you tell the story. Sometimes I read a book and I'm like, that was a really great idea for a story and you blew it. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. You know, like, I wish yeah. I would have thought of that. Yeah. Not Great idea. Terribly asked. I mean, you can bring that around to a question Amanda asked earlier that we never actually answered, which was about the process of translation. Oh, yeah. Because, like, um, so my undergraduate advisor um, is an angel, and she speaks Italian fluently. And so um, she is also a published author, and one of her works was translated into Italian. And despite the fact that she speaks Italian fluently, she did not translate her own writing because that skill, like she could tell the story in Italian, but it wouldn't be the way that she told it in English because she is not skilled in writing in Italian. Um, And, you know, it's it's like capturing the tone. It's capturing the essence of it. Yeah. So like in my old English class that I took at Iowa State, like one of our assignments was to do a really aggressively rough translation of Beowulf and even translating from old English into modern English you know you have to think am I valuing the content am I valuing the writing style am I valuing the aspects of this language that make it lovely Mm -hmm. so in old English it had a lot of these things called kennings which are basically like two-part words so instead of saying king you might say land ruler or something Mm. like that um And so when you're translating, a lot of translators who would take like Beowulf and put it in modern English wouldn't use kennings. They would just say king or something. And so is that removing part of the value of Beowulf um, or is it more important to maintain meaning and context and all Mm. of these different things? And so I think when you find really skilled translators, they are doing just as much creative legwork Maybe not just as much, but a significant amount of and a different language. kind of creative yes. work, yeah, yes. 100%. and bringing it into a different language. Um, and I think there's a lot to say about how the language we use and the language we think in shapes how we interact with the world, um, and it definitely shapes the way you tell a story. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the translators, Sarah and I, wanted to make sure that we were always listing the translators with the authors when we're sharing these titles. Because those translators are are just as important as the authors in, in these contexts. And present, right? In mm-hmm. translated work, they are another 
mm-hmm. player in the game. Yeah. For sure. So it's not just now you and an editor and an author, there's more, but there's also now a translator. And those that relationship between the author and translator, they're vast and varied. They're two people, whoever they might be coming mm-hmm. together. And so yeah. um it's interesting sometimes when you if you do some digging and reading about how those relationships work because not all not all authors have approved of all translations right mm-hmm. and of their own works and some have worked very closely some hadn't there's multiple translations sometimes of a single book which in and of itself isn't always an interesting exercise to mm-hmm. read in iterations which translation do you prefer yeah and they come particularly in classics but yeah. when it comes Ooh, down to really what you're working in it makes a difference it really because it shapes how you understand that, say back to your land ruler and king, right? King has a lot of weight. There is cultural context and historical and social context that that word means. Yeah. It implies a type of power and a and a movement of power mm-hmm. and a control, let alone a um, how much you own or what you have mm-hmm. or what you are allowed to, all within that single word. Yeah. And maybe that's not what the original meant. It had a different context, right? So you're you're overlaying power and structure i love in chinese there's a lot of terms that um are gender neutral mm-hmm. even the word ta which when written you can tell what gender it is but when spoken you can't he she it is the same word so translators will work through that like um if there's a doctor but a gender isn't expressed some translators will always make it a female doctor Cool. Right. Whereas in English, there's a very famous study done about like scientists, right? Ask little kids to draw scientists. They'll draw male scientists. Oh. They'll draw boys, right? These kinds of things. It all works subconsciously. And so translators not only have to be aware of the language from which it's coming, but the language in which they're moving that work yep. into and all of the baggage that sits between that. That's so fascinating. It's yeah. a, it's really an interesting yeah. and a well, like, thankless profession. And strange beast of China, you already told this to me, but I think you said that the word they use in Chinese, strange beast of China is a book we're getting to later in the year. Um, in the original Chinese, I think you said it just means creature, like literally. And so the translator made a choice to say beast instead of creature. And creature is, I would say, significantly more neutral in meaning in English than beast is. But when you read it, you also see because of the arc, right? Choices were made, right? Purposefully, yeah. And it makes sense, I think, to the book, yeah. Why what was chosen was chosen, yeah. And so that's always another interesting. I always encourage people when they read if in lit and translation, always look up the translator as well, not just like oh, what are their credentials, but like what was that relationship? If nothing else, it's interesting, yeah. And you can even see these kinds of things too, um, like we've been talking about classics editions. Um, and I remember in one of my classes in grad school, we were doing um, American Gothic. And so we were reading Edgar Allan Poe's only full-length novel, Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, uh, which is a mouthful. And um, I was not able to get my hands on the edition that the professor had wanted because the edition he wanted um, was very expensive. And so I went with a cheaper, but still reputable press. Well, the edition I had, the editor of that book took out some slurs that referred to indigenous women and obviously this is a big argument but in the edition my professor had that slur was maintained because that's the slur that Edgar Allan Poe used yeah and that day he gave us a long lecture I feel like fairly that 
this is why edition matters. So, um, or in Frankenstein, the original 1818 version is what most people teach because Mary Shelley went back in, I think, like 1836 and rewrote huge sections of the book um, after her husband and her child died that deeply changed the meaning and the tenor of the story. And Whoa. so, um, yeah, so you always want to make sure you're reading the 1818 version. Uh, so this is an issue that you can think about in domestic and in English books, too, just as much as in translated mm -hmm. literature. Cool. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. So when do you meet first? We meet a Friday. I don't know which Friday. Is it yeah. the third Friday? Friday. Yep. This we meet coming Friday. This coming Friday, the 20th at 7. Because today is Tuesday. Today is Tuesday. Oh, sorry. We meet this Friday. At 7 p.m.? At 7 p.m. Which is a great time. Grab your dinner. Come have a drink. If you love everything these ladies have had to share, they're so intelligent and fascinating. Grab their book. Yeah. Yeah. Love in the big city. Thanks. We have it in the store. So that was a fantastic conversation and probably fodder for like three more episodes. We'll have to come back to many of those topics, but we have a few new releases that are exciting. Um, in paperback, we have Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. People love, we love Taylor Jenkins Reid. Yeah, I really like this book. She's a fun writer. So this book, tell us on the setting plot. So it's the same universe as like Daisy Jones and the Six, um, Evelyn, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And if you've read those books, one of the sort of side characters is this musician, Mick Reba. Malibu Rising takes place in 1983, my birth year, mm -hmm. and it focuses on the four almost grown or mostly grown children of Mick Reba, and they're all surfers, and the story takes place over the course of one day, so every summer they throw this big like end of summer bash, the oldest sibling does, and during this day... Um, all these sort of conflicts come to a head between the siblings and their family. Um, and it's just a, it's a fun family drama, very Taylor Jenkins read. read. Yeah. Yeah, she pulls threads together very well. Yep. And what's exciting is that uh, she has a book planned for this fall. You already have your hands on it, right, Rachel? And the title is Carrie Soto is Back. And Carrie Soto is a kind of very peripheral side character in Malibu Rising. Mm -hmm. So that's so. really fun. It's a little treat for her longtime readers, but they're read independently very well. Yep. Um, okay, so that's out in paperback. We also have Falling by T.J. Newman, a thriller. Um, a commercial pilot's family is kidnapped, and in order to save his family, he has to crash the plane, killing everyone on board. What's going to happen? I don't know. Yeah, so that's out in paperback now. Um, we've had people on staff read that and love it. Um, we also have new to the rom-com section, Adult Assembly Required by a favorite rom-com author, Abby Waxman. She wrote The Bookish Life of Nina Hill, our rom-com book club leaders love uh, that book. So Laura moves to LA hoping to start over, but almost immediately runs into trouble. She's homeless and then taken under the wing of a bookseller, because that's <laughs> what we do, who lets her live in a legal boarding house. Um, along the way, she makes friends, including Nina from the, the Bookish Life of Nina Hill, and a couple of love interests pop up. So friendships, love, all the happy things, plus a bookstore. It's the perfect rom-com. Um, 
I'm really excited about the new release in hardcover from Emma Straub. She's one of my favorite writers. Um, she owns Books Her Magic in New York. And um, her most recent book that I enjoyed was All Adults Here. She's really good at family dramas that have weight, but characters that at their heart love one another. And they're just trying to do their best, but like all of us are very flawed. So in This Time Tomorrow, this is just a truly fun book, like very indulgent, um, not typical of her. It's 13 going on 30, but in reverse. So instead of waking up 30, the, the main character, um, Alice, goes to bed on her 40th birthday and wakes up her senior year in high school. But she has all the knowledge and context of an adult. Um, and she takes her teenage life by the balls. Yes. Uh, she makes out with her high school crush, but she also has some uh, really meaningful intentions in her youth now that she has the context of being 40. Primarily, when she's 40, her, her father is sick and he's in a coma and she sees the end of his life. And so she's able to reconnect with him. And the story is a little bit about, um, you know, what we don't realize when we're young, um, what our hopes are for the arc of our life, reevaluating where we get in adulthood. Does it measure up? Um, to where we want to be. Do our regrets really even matter? If we could go back and do it again, would we really like ending up somewhere different? Um, it's about high school friendship. Um, it's about that father-daughter relationship. And it's also a, like this teeny bit of fantasy sci-fi in terms of time travel um, and the fun of storytelling. Her father is an author and that plays into it. And, and it's a really fun, indulgent book. I highly recommend it. Um, and it's influenced by the author's loss of her own father. Um, and I think that's very powerful. So then next up, Rachel, tell us about the new offering from your very favorite author, who is actually a duo of authors. Yeah, Christina Lauren, which is Lauren Billings and Christina Hobbs. Uh, they are coming out with their newest book, Something Wilder, and it's a little different than what they've written before. It's more of an adventure. You get some of that like steamy romance, but it's not heavy on that. Um, so basically, Lily Wilder was raised by her father. Her mom left when she was really young, doesn't have much of a relationship with her. And her father is a treasure hunter, especially in like hunting like the Wild West uh, like sort of bandits treasure that they buried and lost. Um, she was dedicated to wanting to live on her family's ranch and have a ranch and do that. But then her father sold it and it like really hurt their relationship. And so this is many years later, I believe like 10 years later, and she is now not doing the ranch because her dad sold it and is running these wilder adventures where she takes people on the wild west to go find buried treasure and basically it's like kind of a farce but it's a thing for like people who don't live in a rural lifestyle to get out an adventure and take the horse back but then it takes a turn and gets a little serious on the adventure side of like danger um or as my nephew likes to say dingy that's his new thing it's like anything is dingy um and she ends up on her last tour she's taking people out 
is the one guy she was in love with and they didn't ever get closure because he just like up and left due to his mother's death. So it's, you get that right off the bat, like what's going to happen between them two. They were in love with each other and then basically like no contact for 10 years. And he didn't know that this was uh, Lily Wilder. He just knew it was called Wilder Adventures. And she's like, what an idiot. Like it has my name mm-hmm. in the business. Um, so there is a lot of adventure to it with a bit of mystery and definitely treasure hunting. So if you're someone who likes to figure out clues, this is going to be a really fun one for you. This is a fun blend Mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. Um, I really liked it. It was one of my favorites of theirs in a while. So Ellen, tell us about our one um, kind of feature in nonfiction. Well, actually, is it? It's nonfiction. It's it's nonfiction, but I think it's actually uh, a paperback release. Okay. That's okay. Okay, it's River of the Gods, and it's about sort of the race to discover the um, headwaters of the Nile River, so in the 18th century. So think like um, European colonialism in Africa. So there's, it kind of centers around these two British explorers who are like working together, but then form this very bitter rivalry. And all this drama ensues. And then the other side is the East African guide who was instrumental in discovering um, the headwaters of the Nile River. And so it's a book about like colonialism and um, sort of the unsung heroes of exploration and discovery. Yeah. It's a great nonfiction offering. So we talked about one of the highlights of the week um, being found in translation that is going to be their, their inaugural meeting will be Friday at 7 PM here at the bookstore. Um, but before that we'll have story time uh, with lovey 10 AM. And then on Thursday, you have book club, Ellen, what are you guys talking about? We are going to be discussing the paper palace at 10 AM on Thursday. And then on Monday, we will have Women from Other Worlds. This is the Fantasy Book Club, and that meets at 5 o'clock. And something exciting, too, is that starting Monday, May 23rd, we're mixing up our hours once more. Um, We've really been paying attention to when our readers and our customers most enjoy shopping. And uh, with that in mind, we're going to be open an hour later, Monday through Thursday. We're going to be open till 7 p.m., 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., Monday through Thursday. Friday and Saturday, we'll stay at 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then Sunday, we're going to add an hour as well. we're adding a few hours. Two, two hours. Yeah. Three hours. We're three, three hours. Three yeah. hours. So we'll be open at 10 a.m. And then we'll be open till 6 p.m. 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sundays because people really love to, to be here on Sundays. It's a really fun vibe. So we wanted to expand that. Watch those hours changes starting Monday, May 23rd. And with that in mind, cheers, cheers. to another great week of reading. Remember, uh, subscribe, like, follow. Because you want to find out what's happening in Dog Eared Books every single week. Yeah, and if you don't live in Ames, you can always follow us on social or hit our website to order books. Follow us at, at Dog Eared Books Ames or at Dog Eared Books on TikTok. All right, listeners, keep the champagne flowing and the books going. This is so great! It's so great! <laughs>